you're right. I got some very strong, like, Fifty Shades vibes from Kithris. Like, there was some commanding going on there. There was some, uh, he, he, he definitely expected to be obeyed. Stinklings. Okay. So, um, hey, Laura. Hi. How's, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Can't complain. Yeah, well, you especially can't complain because you're another year older. And oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, today. It's your birthday. Yeah, today is my birthday. And I, you know, because I know people are wondering, the whole world is wondering. I'm, I'm 26. And that's a good even number, I'd say. It is a good even number. It, it, um, and and that's how long you've been alive now, which is fantastic. Uh, so, congratulations on on making it another year, and congratulations to all of us for um, you know listening because I think listening to us is a, a laudable event in itself. It is. It's a great. It's a very laudable event for sure. Everywhere on Facebook, people are doing their uh, their ten years ago today. Here's what I looked like, or whatever, and you know. I think that's worth looking at because <laughs> 10 years ago today, give or take, you know, whenever the final Harry Potter book came out, which I think was 2007. Yeah, it was 2007. Or 2008. 2007, 2007, yeah. So when that came out all over Facebook, for those of us who were using Facebook back then, which is, you know, me and everyone I knew growing up in high school, we were all posting that very day talking about like, what we're going to do with our lives now that Harry Potter is over and we have no idea and we're still trying to figure that out actually we're still in a bit of like crisis yeah we yeah <laughs> all of our all fill of, that void all of our current generation's problems come from the fact that we just don't know what to do with our lives after Harry Potter ended how are we supposed to be motivated to go out and get jobs and, and adults and all these other things when we, we don't have our Harry Potter to look forward to each year. This is why we're destroying the napkin industry. It's out of protest <laughs> for not having more Harry Potter. And if you keep this up, J.K. Rowling, of not giving us new Harry Potter books, we're going to start destroying other... We're going to destroy breakfast cereals. We're going to destroy <laughs> uh, divorce even more. And we're going to... We're just going to wreck everything if we don't get more Harry Potter. We're just... We're going to totally and completely wreck just every... Un- unnecessary industry. We're going to be wrecking mm-hmm. uh, doorbells next. That's our next And we're going to burn down your house. <laughs> and pull your family out to the street and beat you. You could make the argument that J.K. Rowling has been trying to fill the void of Harry Potter, but... Mm-hmm. And I've I been mean, trying to she... not destroy the napkin industry, but you see, we don't all get, always get what we, it's, what we tr- set we, out to do. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. I feel I purposefully did not buy any diamonds this year because mm-hmm. I was angry about Harry Potter. Yes, and and that was the only reason I didn't buy any diamonds. No, and and you know where where people are are lamenting the fact that synthetic diamonds. Well, for a while they were um, becoming a viable alternative. I never followed up on that to see what happened because I don't really like have the diamond feed getting into like my my daily news cycle. But they. Um, the reason people were ever after the lab-created diamonds, you know, is because yeah. the only Harry Potter we were able to get for a long time was also lab-created. 
which <laughs> that's the kind of like you find it on on fan fiction and that is the lab of the science of creativity is is fan fiction and fan yes much like yes it mm-hmm. this is true it's not genuine rowling it's well, I would argue, I would sometimes wonder if what we're getting now from Rowling is genuine Rowling, well, but that's she's writing. That's you know, a fire I do not want to start. She's got a whole. She's got like a mystery series, and I, I haven't read it. I, I might. I might. I should. I've heard good things about it, but yeah. just as just as artificial diamonds can give you more color, so can Harry Potter fan fiction give you more Harry Potter color. Like for instance, if you ever wanted to know what the relationship would be like. If Snape and Ollivander were dating, you can find it. <laughs> and if you, you know, among many other very questionable scenarios that you would never, ever, ever want to see play out in real life, but because this is fiction and we're all very angry about Harry Potter, we're gonna just ship everybody gets shipped. Dolores Umbridge and Voldemort together. They're well, shipped. And, and of course things like, you know, Harry Draco. I buy it, of course. I mean, that, that's, it's almost it's almost canon. Like, it's almost right there in the book. But, but uh, yeah. you know, when you, when you start getting, like, Grindelwald x Harry, we're like, okay, hold on a sec. <laughs> I mean, we're skipping some generations. <laughs> maybe if we do, like, time travel plots, we can make that work. And I'm, you know, maybe we oh, do Oh, wait, that one, was but... Harry... Hmm? That was Harry Potter and the and the cursed child, but you know, well, yeah, nobody wants the to cursed talk about child that. in that one was every child because every child every child's yes. Harry Potter fandom was destroyed during the course of that play. <laughs> I I really have no idea what I'm talking about. I haven't actually. We don't know either. I think tangentially, I liked Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the first movie, but then mm-hmm. after that, I kind of lost my enthusiasm for the additions to the series. And then there was that infamous tweet sent out by Potter Moore that was like, fun fact, wizards used to just defecate right in the hallways before plumbing was invented, and then they'd clean it up with magic. Oh, I missed <laughs> yeah, this that's tweet. A... <laughs> oh, you, you, there were memes oh. all over the place. Oh, my. The, the, the fandom was in uproar, and everyone was like, why? Well, Nobody needed to. Hold why a did you? We need to why know is this a, what did this was? Why did we need to know this? <laughs> this it doesn't very, even make any sense. No, this is important lore-breaking stuff, because we need to know what year this was. It's Apparently, it's pre-plumbing, which apparently is pre-Salazar Slytherin, because as we know, uh, yes, Salazar true. Slytherin built the Chamber of Secrets in the girls' bathroom, so, and the only way to get into it was through the faucet. Oh my gosh, so I'm, I'm googling right now, when was Hogwarts founded? Because we need to know like whether we're getting from Pottermore. It was founded in 990 AD, according to... Harry Potter Wikia. And so that means that this Pottermore tweet was exclusive to pre-990 AD. So this might be the earliest piece of Harry Potter trivia in terms of the chronology of the Harry Potter canon. This might be the earliest piece of wizarding history we've ever received. And it's about how wizards used to just, you know, poop in the hallways and then clean themselves up with magic and stuff. That's, and this is it doesn't very even make important any stuff. 
It doesn't even make any sense because, like, muggles had better hygiene than that. They had freaking, you know, chamber pots. The Romans had, the Romans had plumbing. And did the wizards just decide to invent plumbing because they were tired of, <laughs> I don't, I don't, This just, has been a discussion of the pooping sorry. habits of wizards. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just, it's just, you want to know why, why, <laughs> Rowling, why, what made you think this was a good idea? You know, this is not world building, this is world tearing down and beating into a poop. Well, no, what's, what's wonderful, beating into a poop is the term, actually, but <laughs> we, we actually have to consider, now that didn't come out of nowhere. Clearly some, someone was asking this question, like... Someone was asking what wizards did before. Someone had to have. The, the question has to have arisen somewhere. So I have to imagine that, like, this. I mean, I haven't been on Pottermore for a long time. Not since it, you know, opened. And for the first month after that, when I realized it's just a bunch of cool, like, you know, interactive graphics with trivia in it. <laughs> and once I figured yeah. that out, I kind of stopped going on Pottermore, which, you know, maybe is a shame because I, I missed out on the entire discussion. And probably, I imagine, like, <laughs> fandom-shattering debate that prompted this issue. I just picture there was this, like, fan-civil war going on over this issue <laughs> to prompt an official response from Pottermore to settle the issue forever and calm all the fans. So I think we actually owe Pottermore and JK an apology on this one. No, we need more war. We need to unite against them and just demand... I don't know, reason from our fiction. <laughs> we, I think don't. we've turned into this into like a punk rock album. Give violence a chance. Give violence a chance. It's just, I don't know, the, the, the reaction of the fans. My wife is very much more into the fan fiction world than I am, but um, I've, I've, we have sometimes awesome date nights where we'll just sit there and read fan fiction, and, and it can be a great experience. Well, to be fair, Hook isn't exactly ubiquitous in culture in the same way that Harry Potter is. So if someone's writing Hook fanfiction, they've probably been holding on to this fanfiction idea like since they were kids, I'm going to guess. Like really little. And so it's going to be kind of a weirder idea to start with. I'm just going to guess on this. I can't imagine what you found. I oh, asked with anticipation. Oh, you, you, uh, do you, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mm -hmm. feel bad because... The person who wrote it is an artist that I really actually like, like a lot. And I, she, and the, the, the thing about it is that the fan fiction itself is actually like funny and fairly well written, but <clears throat> it, it ships Hook with an older Maggie from the movie. <laughs> oh, okay. Just, they comp and yeah. that's just considering okay you know you remember how hook ended with peter um basically knocking off his wig and showing that he's really just this sad old man uh -huh. and you like you felt sorry for him a bit and then that was and then like he dies and stuff but it's just like mm -hmm. the the author kind of forgot about that part where he's like he's you know he's a sad old man without a mommy and that's <laughs> that's what it is and then she just nope they're shipped together because they had a conversation once <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. anyway that after that 
I I couldn't. I just couldn't anymore. I, mean, I get the idea because because you know Maggie Smith's character is supposed to be Wendy, who was you know the original. Hey Peter, I'm I'm now the mom of all the Lost Boys, and you know the the Wendy bird and all that stuff. No, I I I could see that idea, but the the older Maggie kid from the movie. Oh, you mean Maggie, like. Not oh. not Dame Maggie Smith. Maggie. Oh, I'm... <laughs> what? What? Okay, I'm sorry. I totally misread you there. I was like... <laughs> I was, I was you like, mean... you are not nearly shocked enough for yeah, <laughs> what I'm telling okay. you. Oh. Um, well, <laughs> let's, can we just get back to wizards defecating? Yeah, let's get back to that. That's probably a little more wholesome so um we had a topic kind of we yes to we talk did about. and then we completely derailed it here we go on our topic of the day which uh so pacing we all do it mm. um mm-hmm. everyone does just like mm-hmm. wizard defecation we always pace yeah we and, always pace the wizard defecation well i mean we always pace just as wizards have always defecated and the the pacing it can be a tricky thing. I was an editor at a publishing company, and one of my jobs was to occasionally review manuscripts that got sent in. And I'd review many, many manuscripts, and I saw quite a few fantasy manuscripts that came to our genre fiction uh, imprint. And, you know, almost all of them had interesting ideas in them. And by interesting ideas, I mean just about anything original someone's going to write is going to have an interesting idea in it because something prompted that person to write at some point, right? And usually that's some little spark of inspiration. We understand that there's always going to be some idea. The least helpful writing group I was ever in, uh, at the end of every reading, they would go, well, this has potential. Well, that's not very helpful, is it? Everything has potential. But what do we need to do to get there? And one issue I often found was pacing, starting the story off at a good place, and um, in particular with action. So I don't remember the exact name of all these terms because I have not been studying the writing craft of late. But you know the general (laughs) idea that you should have rising tension, rising tension, climax, and then resolution, right? Yeah. Those are the pyramid of storytelling. And I kind of think that this needs to go, like this needs to be true maybe of individual scenes as well, because we all kind of have an idea that the beginning is a very important spot and we need to have something happening at the beginning. We need to have some hook, you know, to, to suck you in as a reader, right? Yeah. What a lot of people would do... I would see someone, for example, just totally random example from one of the manuscripts I read, their hook was they lose one of their little brothers. He gets kidnapped by some bad group. And that's not a bad hook. You know, that that can definitely work. What happened is they spend about, I think, 10 pages to make this happen. And by then I'm kind of already lost because in the first page it was, I think, conversations and them talking about their house, (laughs) which is not you know ideal 
Even though, I mean, you might think, well, The Hobbit, doesn't it start off talking about the Hobbit hole? Well, yeah, we'll get to Tolkien. Um, yeah. Who's, by the way, Laura, you, you know what the uh, J.R.R. stands for in, in Tolkien? His name? John mm. something something. I know no. this first, I know the J is for John. No, uh, my wife actually corrected me on that. It's actually Jolkin. <laughs> Jolkin Rolkin. <laughs> Jolkin Rolkin Rolkin Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. Jolkin Rolkin Rolkin Tolkien Tolkien. Because the, the second R is Rolkin Tolkien. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, now, it, you know, that's a much more distinguished and mm-hmm. uh, clear clear name. Yes. But thank you for cor- for correcting my, my perception on that. No, because I, I was under the same impression for a long time. So, it's important, you know, you get your hook at the very beginning and that you get not necessarily right to it immediately in the first word, but that you have something. We, we talked about opening lines in our last one. And so, you know, you have to have some way of conveying pretty quickly what people are getting themselves into, why they should keep reading beyond the first line, beyond the first page. And you shouldn't take 10 pages to get to the actual hook. In this case, the uh, little brother was kidnapped or taken away. And I, I really wanted to give a fair shake to this author because this, it was a pretty small publishing company and I had the time. So I read about halfway through it and the whole subplot of the brother missing was referenced maybe twice again. And I, it was not ultimately the reason they go off on the quest. It was not to rescue the brother. The brother was just sort of a, a thing that happened, but mm-hmm. you know, it's not important. Right. I guess that's kind of the importance of drafting and redrafting is to, to have, just go through and be like, does this plot thread actually go anywhere? And uh, as you introduce plot threads later, because you have a cool idea, oh, this would make this would make my story a lot better. Go through and do a rewrite once you're done and make sure that you kind of lead up to that at some point so it doesn't come out of the nowhere that it turns it out of the nowhere. That Ooh, that's kind of a cool idea. Out of the nowhere. Out of nowhere, we start having the plot be about demon summoning when earlier it was about some oppressive government that kidnaps your brother. That broader topic of, you know craft and draft your story to make sure that you have all your loose ends tied up and that you um, actually are telling a cohesive story about the same thing and that your plot B, plot C, etc. tie into your plot A or in some way like serve some kind of a purpose. But then with pacing of individual scenes. Yeah. Your your battle scenes. If yes, everyone is scenes. constantly just fighting the whole time, it gets monotonous. Yeah, and let's just be honest. I don't know. Maybe other people don't agree with this, but for me personally, I find battle scenes to be really boring to read about. Like, I don't know. I read through it, and I think, well, this sure would be a great scene if I could see it in, like, film or in comics, but in writing, it's just not, it's not very interesting. It's one thing to hear someone talk about something that happened, and it's another to actually see it for yourself, you know? So, I don't know, which is why I think a more effective strategy is less to focus on the action itself and more focusing on the characters and what they're thinking and feeling. And Exactly that, and that comes to something that's common between Tolkien and Tolstoy. The two tolls. The two tolls. Um, yes. Uh, L. Tolstoy, the L, of course, standing for Lolstoy. Well, yeah, of he course. wrote the war epic, really, War and Peace. Yes. And in War and Peace, his battle sequences are actually very similar to Tolkien's battle sequences in one important way. And it's in that way you just described. It's not this, even though there's this massive epic battle in uh, the case of War and Peace, the one I'm thinking of is 
uh, against Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't begin with you see the armies marching towards each other. It doesn't begin with the action jumping from person to person to person, even though there are enough people to distribute the action among, you know, a, a diverse cast of characters. It keeps the action pretty centered around the experience of one person and or one or two people, you know, very limited group of people experiencing this. And Tolkien does this as well in in my remembrance of Tolkien. You know, the battle sequences, they're, they're sudden, they're abrupt, and they're filled with fear and uncertainty. He definitely had that pacing, though, where leading up to the battle, you had all this tension, all these preparations, and that was almost as... It was almost as... Well, I don't want to say fun as, as a reader, but it... it it builds up all this tension and you're super stoked for the scene to actually begin. And then it's just super quick. And that can be incredibly satisfying or it can be incredibly disappointing depending on how you do it. But the point is, it's the rising action, the rising action, the rising action. They do this super well in the films as well, where everything leading up to the battle is, it's the rising action. It's, uh, even though the film versions deviate quite a bit from the books, but take, for example, on uh, Weathertop, where you have you know, the hobbits, and they're left alone, and they're given swords by, by Aragorn, and he goes off on his own to scout around, and then Frodo wakes up, and they have a fire lit. You can't have a fire lit. They'll see it. And then he puts it out, and they're yelling, and it, you know, it builds this tension. The scene itself of the battle is not that long, and I think that's sort of something you, you want to um, realize as, as a writer of really anything, because... This is as true in War and Peace as it is in uh, The Lord of the Rings. But this idea that war and battle, it's a very personal, intimate thing because it's wars are not fought by armies. Wars are fought by a collection of individuals. And it's the individual experience that you're trying to capture, at least at first. Maybe eventually later on in your story, you could capture the sweeping scale of a massive battle. But I'm thinking of the one time... The most successful huge-scale battle I can think of in fantasy was Robert Jordan. Really, at this point, it's Brandon Sanderson writing. At the end of the last book, he does he depicts the last battle through a huge portion of the book. But almost all of the last battle is just told from these individual perspectives, looking at these very small pieces of the battle. Mm -hmm. And it's this very intimate, frightening, intense experience in each of their cases. And that's how he keeps the tension going, is he keeps these storylines like rising tension, rising tension, rising tension in plot A, B, C, D, and then climax A, climax B, climax C, just throughout the whole thing. And finally resolution through, well, I'm not going to spoil it, but it, it, it turned out so well and it came down to basically a single character at the very end. And that's how the whole... It's just a one-on-one -on -one battle at the very end, and that's what everything boiled down to, and it was just so well done. That, I think, exemplifies how a general idea of how one should approach battle action sequences in fantasy, as in any other kind of writing. Yeah, and in the case of thinking again of Tolkien, remember, like, two things that come to mind for me. You know, maybe part of, you know, what he, why he showed battle and war the way he did in Middle Earth was because, you know, he really wished that when he was fighting, he was fighting for something like that, you know, for the greater good. And so that longing, I don't know, that longing, that wish carried over into his books, like, okay, if we must fight, why can't it just be for something that's genuinely, like, good? But then, um, in the Two Towers, especially the movies, for me, what really got me was the fact that, like, you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep takes up like the latter, what, half of the movie that's a really long time for a battle to go on i remember watching aragon 
and thinking like that battle was the last like eighth of the movie and i was bored like three minutes in and it was really it was such a boring battle it was so weird and but then with helm's deep that one goes on for like ever but it's much more interesting because it depicts like it's it's absolutely grueling it brings you to the point of like they're making a last stand they might not live and i mean we know they're some of them probably will because this is just the second book but there is that sense of like desperation and you know hardship and like okay we've been doing this forever they're about to break through there's no hope and then that tension is released when we see gandalf appearing with the rest of you know rohan's armies and they come down and save the day and it's like the most epic shot of the movie like an actually epic and truest form of the word where gandalf is leaping into the action with his staff lit up and everything and that to me is like that's the only battle i've ever actually like liked watching because <laughs> it showed mm-hmm. it was a personal story for all of the characters who were going through that battle and you genuinely want you were you were tense and wanting them to see it through and at the end you were kind of even like losing a bit of hope that they were going to make it because the odds were just so against them and then like you were gen- instead of feeling like it was a cop out at the end when Gandalf and you know what's his face <laughs> We all forget what his name is. Mm-hmm. Just came in at the end and saved everyone. It just felt it felt less like a cop out and more like a yes, someone helped them. Yes, because because there was payoff there because you know Theoden's relationship with his nephew was very strained at the beginning, and we weren't sure. Like we were pretty, we pretty much had forgotten about them by the end of the movie. But then, you know, it kind of it goes back to the theme that the whole series is about. You know, it's about the goodness of humanity and fighting against evil and how we all need to band together and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, but that was, Hmm. you know, I just that's what I was thinking of. Well, you know that uh, I I wasn't sure about all the um, all of what was going on through uh, Professor Tolkien's head as he was writing everything. But what he has told us through his various essays and other writings that. What they did with the film, which of course deviated substantially from the, the book. In fact, there was a whole scene shot, as many people know, with with uh, Eowyn, not Eowyn. Eowyn was Eowyn. physically present there. Liv Tyler Arwen? was to be there. Thank <laughs> Arwen? you. Arwen? You forgot was, Arwen's they, they, name. Okay, whatever. <laughs> they filmed Arwen doing battle sequences there. and Regardless, what they did... In the film, just speaking of the film, they did an excellent job of building that tension because it wasn't just, you know, we, we look at Aragon and we see maybe what went wrong in that battle. I can point to maybe a, a bunch of things where so we have things. archers to the front. That's where you send archers, I yeah. guess. And two of them, two, you see two of them leap over barriers and gun, go right up to the front of the battle. Like, well, that's going to help exactly nothing. It's like, look out, Robert Carlyle is chewing the scenery. <laughs> it's, oh my goodness. We love you, sir. Please keep doing what you're doing. Leading up to the battle, Mm -hmm. comparing the Two Towers versus Aragon, in the Two Towers, they built the film around this battle, essentially. And in the film itself, they, I mean, the visual spectacle, of course, 
Um, and then they, they have a variety. They have different stages of the battle. So it's still a story progressing. You still have rising tension even when the battle has begun. As a scene, it has rising tension and climax. Like, so you're doing the rising tension throughout the film, and then the battle begins, and that ostensibly is the climax, but then that sets off an entire new rising tension where the battle progresses in phases where you have them uh, just trying to scale the low walls, and then they destroy the lower wall, and then they send up their uh, siege ladders to the top, and then then they they break through the keep, and then they're then they're right up to the door, and then comes Tolkien's U catastrophe, <laughs> and Gandalf comes down the hill and saves them as they go out for a last stand. By the way, in that film count the number of times they say one last time it's quite a lot yeah well i mean if we're going for more gritty reality i guess because this is a fantasy book that's obviously what you're going for you know how many times do you think you're going to die in the in a battle like probably a lot of times so at least one last time it's like well but one last time guys <laughs> for reals yeah it, and it is just kind of funny because they use the line a lot in the and film that's not i mean and of course you know, well, I'm loath to quote Nostalgia Critic here, but he did make a good point when he said, you know, they kind of jump into, you know, the the main characters jump into certain deaths a few too many times, like Gimli literally mm. being thrown into a crowd of orcs. I mean, kind of diminishes the... Yeah. It's like, dude, well, what it, are you... It does strain the realms of credibility. It's like, that's just silly. That's not... That's just silly. Yeah. But... But you excuse it because the the film as a whole is yeah. so well put together. Yeah, and I actually think that they kind of spent all of their I don't know they kind of did it too well in with Two Towers because the battles after that in and we're talking about the movies here we're not even talking about the books anymore <laughs> talking <laughs> but the battles after Helm's Deep just kind of don't have that same feeling except like I guess in the case of uh, for, uh, uh what's <laughs> Faramir? Yeah, Faramir. Sorry, there are too many characters. When Faramir goes off to basically die because he's ordered to by his father, there is drama in that one. But that one's you don't even see the battle. So the in in the Return of the King, I felt like with the films, what they were doing because it was they were never going to be able to match Helm's yeah. Deep from the previous film in terms of scale and epicness but what they did was make them uh, much more emotion driven and so you had the the charge of the Rohirrim with the fantastic soundtrack and you had they, they did a fantastic job mm-hmm. but as a film you, you you have Battle of Helm's Deep is a great example of, of that rising tension and then it ends with the U catastrophe which is how Tolkien that's his modus operandi mm-hmm. really then uh you have and, and to Tolkien to to sort of paraphrase Tolkien that's what makes good fantasy good fantasy is that you catastrophe where everything it's described actually they they basically put um Tolkien's you catastrophe in essay format in the lips of uh Sean Astin (laughs) as as, um yeah Sam Gamgee where he basically describes where things don't look like they could get any worse and it looks like certain doom and then at the last minute the you catastrophe or the good catastrophe happens and everything's okay and but it's not just everything is wiped clean it's it's it feels so satisfying and thrilling and exciting and then they do it twice actually in return of well they do it throughout the series but twice in i meant to say the two towers the film where you have the uh you, you have the battle of helm's deep but you also have um the ents 
um, mm. marching on Isengard, and that's the other U catastrophe where uh, they they win that whole half of the country essentially. Yeah. And meanwhile, in Aragon, the <laughs> final battle was even though visually they did their very best to match it shot for shot with the two towers. Mm-hmm. Um, I argue that venue matters a great deal and they set it up in kind of a difficult venue for battle, but that's that's how the author wants to set up their world and world building can solve all those problems. But you really, we're, again, just looking at the film, not looking at the book, although I think in this case it's valid to do either. <laughs> you, you have them recreating shot for shot where um, we have um, Durza is, is trying to inspire the... Um, what are they called? Please, please help me. Which try to inspire the. What are they not orcs? They're, They're not orcs. Urgles. There. I'm yes, sad that I remember that, inspire... but I don't remember Faramir's Thank name. You. Oh my gosh. That's okay. You saved me there. You have the Urgles getting inspired by, by <laughs> yes, and and there's a giving his he even does the same gestures as they have Christopher Lee do, mm-hmm. but it just does not build that same tension because they have not been building to this battle from the beginning of this film. They have not been alluding to it. They have not. They haven't had the skirmishes leading up to this specific battle. Mm. It's they show up at at Elfland yeah. and the and they're like, hey, okay, there's going to be a uh, battle. Okay, let's get ready. And uh, ten minutes later, there goes the battle, and we have just a few scenes of them getting ready for it, and they're not really filled with tension because it's like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll win, win this. We know we'll win this definitely. I mean, it'd be kind of lame if some movie. And are we together, Safira, as one? Yeah. yeah. I think another thing that oh, really doesn't know favors is the fact that we barely care about the main characters and like we barely we don't even care about Arya or we just met the Varden. I know people are going to be like it's the Varden not the elves like whatever. I <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's um are there a whole bunch of like Allegasia it's it's complicated out there yeah there's the elves which are the elves there's the Varden which is the resistance because even Christopher Paolini knows that the resistance is way overused um but see the Mm. thing about the two towers is that it had a lot of emotional character driven buildup and you really genuinely felt like a like a connection to the characters and you the story was so good that you you know you felt that build up and you felt that the dread that everybody was feeling and you like you didn't want these people to die but there was still that sense of you even had an anglo-saxon uh form poem (laughs) given yeah ahead of time where is the horse and his rider where is the horn that was blown that that is that is uh, ancient Anglo-Saxon poetic form yeah. that was used there. And like... Of a, of a lamentation. Yeah, and there's that whole... You know, the whole scene where King Theoden is like weeping at the grave of his son. And you're like, oh, wow, this is really powerful, dark stuff. <laughs> Whereas in Aragon, yeah. it's like, I guess Brom died. That's, yeah. that's terrible. And he got a... <laughs> crystal tomb oh yeah with Saphira's crystal tomb magic and, i can't do much but i can do this like, wow that's almost like that's the only reason you would ever do yeah, that like, is for this exact purpose it's oddly oddly specific okay Saphira, we can sell mm-hmm. this off I mean, wait <laughs> no or you might have been able to use that during the battle ever and, <laughs> well then we get to the battle and 
And we don't ever, not only do we not do that, but we kind of just keep doing the same things. It doesn't exactly have phases, this battle. It's more just like there is a ground element and there is an air element to the battle, the two theaters of battle. And they're kind of happening concurrently with some interaction between the two, but really only unidirectional with, um, you know, with Aragon and Saphira. Like, hey, those people down there who in the film version are probably all drafted, we're going to burn them to crisp and smile while we do yes. it and watch that guy's face. He looks like he's having the time of his Whoa! life as he is crisping <laughs> to death. Those people who, uh, according to the film version, have been drafted, though, of course, in the uh, book, I don't recall there being any draft, but eh. that's all. There are slave traders, though, so maybe that's subtext, uh, but uh, should have made that explicit in the book. It's only, the slave traders are only active in, like, a couple parts of Allegasia. I don't remember. It was whatever. Yeah. Anyway, but the point is, I think really what it, what it all comes down to is, you know, the buildup and then the climax, and then, you know, the descending. But then there's also, mm -hmm. you make a promise, and then you follow through on it. Aragon yes, yes. made uh, no promises, and when it did, those promises were broken. It's a Chekhov's battle. Chekhov's battle, except it's, yes. whereas with Chekhov's, it's, it applies more to, like, you know, hey, here's this thing, everything has a use in the story, in uh i think of like the promise and follow through is like you know every all of this all of these characters have a point and all of their trauma and drama and stuff has a point and you know it's sort of like i don't know it is sort of the george lucas i mean he's a george lucas uh policy of rhyming like it has to you have to have uh harmony and balance in a movie i mean i george lucas isn't exactly the best example but you got to admit that like you know he's really good at um having that very balanced and harmonious sense in his stories and in the case of like the two towers again like it began with like trauma and tragedy and and a sense of a loss of hope but there was a promise that you know you would there would be something hopeful by the end i don't know if i'm making any sense yeah you are and i think uh, that that helps inspire maybe next time we should talk about grim dark <laughs> yeah grim dark <laughs> um grim dark is always a great thing but uh with that, uh, shall we continue our reading of my fantasy epic that I wrote when I was 12 years old? A summary. After the flaming mouth creature thing threw Sonadred into the river and he was rescued and we encountered Kithris, who moves on Sonadred with surprisingly sensuous <laughs> um, lines and and uh, actions, and then vanishes. Uh, they, he and Sonadred and Swag, go out to Swagiga, go out to the river um, so that they can investigate. But instead of going to the river, Swag leads them to a crossing point, at which point Sanadred starts leading them down a different path, and yes, uh, he remained completely still, giving time for Swag to catch up. When at last, <clears throat> I'm sorry, when at long last he did, Sanadred motioned him to remain still, which Swag attempted to do. It was just really hard, okay? <laughs> it was apparently quite difficult to do. Um, alerted as they were at some sound that a creature of some sort had made, neither saw the figure in the shadows moving silently towards them. It moved with 
unhindered grace, elegant yet deadly, long black ripples of cloth billowing behind it as it approached the two men standing alone in the clearing. I guess they're in a clearing. I did not make that clear. Because previously, uh, Sonadrid had been barely visible amongst the thick and darkening vegetation. Uh, so they're being attacked by Dementors, I see. Or maybe, it, all we know is that it moves with unhindered grace and is elegant yet deadly, and has long black ripples of cloth billowing behind it. Oh, it's, sorry, it's a uh, Fashion Week model. Fashion Week Dementor. The Fashion Week Dementor model. Um, I apologize, by the way, if there are licking sounds in the background. That is my dog licking my desk for some reason. Anyway. Sure, Laura. Sure. Yeah, I'm, that's me. I'm licking my desk. Sonadred first heard a sound like wind screaming against a window and whirled around. Because <laughs> that's what wind does. <laughs> so it's a windy day today, guys. <laughs> that's, that's the wind. Anyway, and whirled around, but not before the agile cloaked being ducked behind a nearby tree. I thought that said agile cloaked duck. Agile cloaked being ducked behind a nearby tree. Swag leapt into the air when suddenly the tree behind him erupted in the cries of many small birds and animals, which flew, crawled, or hopped away from the tree, shrieking in exquisite terror! <laughs> what is that? and animals and we have to go through all their various um means of locomotion and they're shrieking in exquisite in terror exquisite terror oh boy <laughs> which both men i mean while both men debated silently with themselves whether or not to investigate <laughs> yeah you take your time there guys a thin sit there after you leap into the air. <laughs> a thin tendril of smoke began to rise from the tree. Swag noticed mm. this and took a step closer. When the entire tree burst into a hellish flame, <laughs> unlike any other. This is metal. As this is, and it gets metal. even more metal. This gets so metal. Ordinary flame burned because it had to. Whereas this flame burned for the sheer joy of burning. Malevolence and destruction. You had to have it had three. a mind. Those yeah. three. You have to obey the rule of three at all times. Yes, always. Just like as we read in the the, the immortal first words of uh, Fahrenheit four fifty one, it was a pleasure to burn and a malevolence and a destruction. <laughs> Think more, more synonyms. What are more? Syn- <laughs> Let's do more, more, more things that will thematically convey that this is a deliberate. It had a mind of its own, and Sanadrid somehow recognized a life in it. And knew then that the fire truly lived. And this fire was hungry for the flesh of other beings. Mm. Crying with surprise and fear, the men turned and sprinted in the direction (laughs) that Senator directed them. (laughs) The sounds of deep diabolical laughter haunting their steps. They wove in between trees, leapt over bushes, and crouched under thick branches, never halting, not even to catch their breath. <laughs> wow. They, they immediately collapsed from an inability to run anymore. Because they ran out of air and then yes. died. When mm-hmm. in time they came upon the old willow, 
they they found the found their raft had been incinerated (laughs) a pile of not the raft (laughs) not not the eternal raft a pile of ashes and burn marks around them a pathetic testimony of their escape wait around the wait what but their raft was in water Um, didn't they tie it off did they not okay all right wait a second i'm very (laughs) <laughs> so the old willow isn't the tree? No, no, this is a different tree entirely. Okay, I'm very... I don't think you've ever... I don't think the old willow was even mentioned before this, so what, I mean... Very very briefly, because that is where the um, the marks were made. A safe passage mark with his father's robe oh, blade. gotcha. Okay, yes. right. Mm-hmm. That, okay. that makes perfect... Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, you, Clearly... You're, you're Clearly, I, I, com- I it was my fault for losing track of the narrative. <clears throat> of course, for not holding on to that one reference. Yeah, that's. Mm. I needed to keep better track. Okay. Their fear-driven mm. minds did not heed this, however. <laughs> Ignore the, the, the burnt-up raft. And There's they pl- no boat. And they plunged headlong into the river, <laughs> swimming with all their might and mind. And mind. They use the you use your brain to swim. Oh, wow. Mm. The village was in an uproar when two soaked men came rushing into the village, uproar, uproar. dripping river water with uproar. every step they took and crying out. Like madmen. Ah! Mm. Uh, one of them, recognizable only by his thick beard, after his long hair was laid over his face by the water, was melted. <laughs> <laughs> Better known as Swag. Just in case you forgot. Just, we have to return to that. Um, the other they did not recognize until very close, looking very close, seeing that it was Sonadred. They were astounded that he was now less stout than he remembered him. Uh, he lost, you know, when when you're swimming, I don't know how many, how, how big that river was, but it seems like it was, you know, you, you burn a lot of fat doing that. Either that or the river is made up of like methamphetamines. <laughs> he has just been like dropping those calories and he probably has, his skin's gone gray too and he's lost his teeth. Anyway. Um, they were astounded that he was now less stout than they remembered him. About More town. like a large bouncer from a disreputable pub. What? What? That's oddly specific. <laughs> than a large, nobly born lad. About time you lost some weight, Sonadred. <laughs> About time you lost some weight, lad. Before the commotion could subside, Swag leapt upon a nearby table. As close to the village square as he could, uh, with the crowd attempting to speak with him, and cried, My people, we are in grave danger! The crowd gasp, went silent gasp, suddenly gasp. as Swag continued, A great evil has entered the forest, one that may not subside. It has <laughs> set the forest ablaze. He pointed <laughs> at the column of smoke billowing out of the forest. Just in case you missed that, you know, yes. uh, mm. and nearly slew Sonadred last eve. <laughs> we must hinder the evil in any way that we are able. I must meet with my counselors if we are to take a course of action. <laughs> the meeting will be held immediately. <laughs> <laughs> he paused for a moment and a number of people murmured. Murmur, murmur, murmur. 
Yes, he continued. I will not waste another moment. <laughs> I, I shall not bathe these... myself nor dry myself until we have reached a conclusion. <laughs> That's a promise. <laughs> Let me tell no you more no about how I'm going to no take bathing. action. <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, no. oh my no, don't do that we do so love our noses and we would not want them to be destroyed by such an odor has to be spelled with a u john spelled with a u sonadred muttered earning small titters around him <laughs> Small titters from everyone around him. Uh, I love how it's... No, we will immediately launch on a course of action. I will literally not bathe until we have finished this. First things first, let's get these meeting notes in order. Get our agenda ready <laughs> yeah. and our counselors into the uh, gold room. We shall begin shortly. The days passed slowly and anxiously. The decision unmade and time was running short. Uh, how? <laughs> More columns of smoke. You know, while the forest is on fire, you know. <laughs> mm, okay. Right. Don't need to... Okay. More columns of smoke rose above the forest to the south, and a number of villagers had left the village to the alleged safety of the Lindala, <laughs> the capital of the, the war country, Arcatil. You just keep adding names here, don't you? It's a war country, specifically, with a, with a oh, hyphen. Boy. No other kind but war. That's what they do. They're a war country. That's their economy. But it, rumor spread of a ghost draped in a black robe, the vengeful spirit of a dishonored knight from the war, seeking revenge upon all he met who let his sacrifice pass out of all knowledge. Many believed and many did not. And however, twas true, <laughs> whether twas true or not, was debated among all. <laughs> A very specific rumor, almost like I was, like, this isn't a foreshadow. This is, like, straight up telling you what twas the case. Twas. At long last, toward the end of the day, whatever day that was, Meldon emerged from his house where his counselors and he had been meeting for days. For days. He While the forest bathed. has been on fire, we remind you. He hasn't Bathed. He has not bathed and he has not dried t- himself. Got mildew <laughs> growing on his clothes, mold, and all the nooks and crannies. It's not pretty. <laughs> and all were overcome with the great hush. <laughs> uh, anxiety was thick in the air, and Swag knew he must name the decision he had made. Because he's just going to come out there and be like, Nope, I, and just go back in. Like I named this decision Frank. It is Frank, which is short for swag. <laughs> All right. We have decided, he announced, to create a guard with a capital G. <laughs> Our men will receive training from those that served in the war and become a force that should be sufficient to defend Out Village. <laughs> All who wish to serve their village and country with glory, come forth to me. Oh, sorry. Um, to me! The last words came as a bold shout 
and there was not one man or boy who would, who could hold a bow or wield a sword that did not step forward. <laughs> Sonadrid had stepped confidently, feeling a strange excitement that he had never thought himself capable of. I will be taught to be the hero he had always imagined. He thought to himself. <laughs> Who's he? Who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Is it Kithras? Oh, please tell him it's Okay. His spirit was somewhat dampened upon discovering that Kithras would be his tutor. Oh. Kithras sent chills down Sonadrid's mm. spine. Yet he knew there was no dissuading swag when in such a situation... Okay, can I just comment on the just terrible bureaucracy in this town? Yeah. It took you that long to form a defensive force Sorry. against whatever shadowy <laughs> evil forces were encroaching upon your small town. Oh my gosh, you got... Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> we have to we have to wonder, like, during the deliberations process, what, like... They came to the conclusion to start a village watch, basically. We're going to do a neighborhood watch <laughs> because there's a ghost out there and it started fires. And the fires, I guess, are getting closer to the village. A couple of buildings and are on fire now, but we're still deliberating. Don't you think, like, a firefighting force would be wiser <laughs> yeah. in this case? Maybe, yeah, like, a couple of firefighters. You got a river. I mean, and is, shouldn't that be, like, your most immediate concern, you know? <laughs> And maybe, like, the reason it took days is because they're like, no, maybe we should, like, not have a village watch. <laughs> we want to die, thank you very much. Maybe it took him that long to come up with his speech or something. Like, I can't. <laughs> it took him a long, he it was on the spot. It took him a while to come up with that speech. Now, let's just see how unintentionally, like, homoerotic this training <laughs> session gets. All right. The next day, the lessons would begin. Sonadrid knew at once that he was to be mocked and ridiculed by his instructor. He grudgingly entered the makeshift arena. <laughs> There's an arena. directed for the guardsman in training, casting his glance about for his tutor. He found him with no difficulty, as Kithris had apparently been waiting for him. He was sitting right by Commodius, who was about to give the thumbs down. <laughs> Kithris regarded him for a moment, without a single emotion crossing his hard face. At length he spoke mm. and said, Look at the sun. <laughs> Sonadred did this, and Kithris asked what he saw. Are you referencing seen... Lion King right now? <laughs> <laughs> Everything the sun touches is mine. No, um... <laughs> <laughs> I see that it is a bit higher than the trees, Sonadred told the taller man, who did not hesitate to answer. And as my student, you will arrive at this arena when the sun reaches the far horizon, Kithris said, pointing into the distance where the rocky mountains gave way to the river that swept out to sea. Sonadred nodded, then waited expectantly. Um... <laughs> Wait, I'm really confused because we didn't we didn't specify what Kithris's the sun... emotionless face began at once to display disgust. But but, <laughs> but he's telling him to reach. But, he's telling him to come back at sunset because he needs to take a nap or something. 
that's what I got from that. And if he was going to... Then why was he even there? What? Yeah, it's like they told him that they, they were supposed huh? to be... Get, <laughs> so leave now and come back then! Baka! He barked. <laughs> Baka. Baka. Yes, senpai. <laughs> Making Sonager jump. <laughs> Kithris turned and left, then paused, turning back to Sonadrid. <laughs> Kithris wore a long coat. <laughs> <laughs> mud stains were vis- mud were stains visible. <laughs> mud were stains visible on the tails that came down past his knees. Wait, on which side? <laughs> which trailed behind him? Are we suddenly reading he- my immortal? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> which trailed behind him as he returned to tower before Sonadred. He reached into his coat and pulled out a long, thin object wrapped in seemingly ancient leather? What? Take this into your house and inspect it, yet do not think of using it. You're liable to cut or kill yourself, he said (laughs) over his shoulder as he walked away. Sonodred looked at the blackened bundle in his hands, nearly as tall as he with thongs of torn leather whipping in the wind. He tried to guess what it was, but did not allow his hopes to rise. He turned and headed back to his house, clasping his cloak about him for warmth. Here, take this, but don't use it. Just look at it. Here are some thongs that are attached to Thongs of torn leather thongs whipping in the wind. <laughs> we have, and then we have thongs of leather whipping in the wind. This, oh, this scene has gotten very okay. Okay, moving on. <laughs> You're liable to kill or hurt yourself. <laughs> Just. <laughs> okay. He came to the edge of the village and to his large house near the river. Entering, he greeted his mother. He's not important, by the way. I guess he stole upstairs to his wooden chamber, hastily unwrapping, one word, (laughs) the item, only to find that the slimmer end was held tight by a strong knot that was obviously meant to be permanent. He then went to unwrap the opposite thicker end to find that the leather came away easily revealing an iron sword hilt bare of engravings yet grand in some way that sonadred could not name would not name he might have been able to but darned if he's gonna <laughs> it's grand somehow i just can't I, think of the proper I'm not gonna tell you adverbs here i don't know no i th- it was there nonetheless <laughs> I'm just imagining his mother is like, you know, Norman Bates's mother from Psycho. She's just like this husk <laughs> in the basement that he goes to say hi to when he comes home. <laughs> he gave her no heed as he came in today. <laughs> oh, dear. The rest mm. of the leather was a sheath. He realized as Wait. Oh, sorry. The rest <laughs> of the leather was a sheath. He realized there's no comma he here as he un- attempted to mm-hmm. unwrap further and was confronted with the same knot. What? Confound it. Knots, my one weakness. He drew the blade 
and found that it was black with age and had many nicks and scratches in it. The blade was straight, however, and still sharp. Heeding Kithris's warning, he sheathed the blade and placed the sword upon the floor near the door, where it would not escape his sight. <laughs> he was afraid it would run away, you see. <laughs> well, I mean, it might, because this thing seems to be a variable size. I mean, I mean, Kithris pulled it out of his coat earlier. <laughs> he didn't even see it. And by the way, yeah. is this just... Okay, I have to ask, is this just Dernwin from the Chronicles of Perdane? Oh, um, I hadn't thought of it, but it does bear an uncanny resemblance. It's a bit uncanny. I just, I had to, mm. I had to, I mean, in this case, you can unsheath it, but I mean, come on. Anyway, the day was spent idly, you know, in this terrible emergency that they're in the middle of. And Sonadred, yeah, apparently. Sonadred, oh, look at the lovely fire coming ever closer. And Sonadred <laughs> knew that he was to save his strength for the upcoming training, as luxurious as the day was. <laughs> oh, no. With all the fire and the ghosts, <laughs> it came to a close finish when the sun began to disappear over the western horizon, and Sonadred <laughs> left the comfort of his house to enter the village. Oh boy, he entered the arena where he found Kithris waiting again <laughs> with a grim look on his face. <clears throat> Come, Sonadred, he said the instant Sonadred was within earshot. We have little time before the moon will be fully waxed. How this would affect his training, Sonadred knew not. Kithris set out upon the road leading out of the village, motioning Sonadred to follow, making me wonder why I bothered putting the arena there. <laughs> <laughs> when he reached the forest, he broke off from the cobble path into the water. <laughs> what? Immediately from the from the, the path into the water and onto a slender, nearly invisible dirt road, snaking out to a small shack. Kithris uh, opened what passed for a door, a deerskin flap, and emerged. Clasping a makeshift raft. <laughs> oh my gosh! Everyone has a raft. <laughs> no wait. Oh wait, no! It was the same <laughs> one that Sonadred had used to cross the river innumerable times. The raft didn't get burnt. It's my favorite character. No, the raft has been saved. The raft, the raft, is, raft saved. is still alive. Oh, thank goodness. The raft lives. Ooh. How did you get that? Sonadred gasped. It was lost in the river. Do keep going. Quiet yourself and board it. Kithris instructed as he threw it upon the flowing water. My tastes are unconventional. Sonadred bit back his fears. <laughs> Oh, no. And stepped upon the raft with unsteady legs. It wavered, but did not slip or sink. Kithris stepped on it next, and the slow but short journey began. It took only a few minutes' time to reach the far bank. Kithris repeatedly glanced anxiously at the quickly fading sky. <clears throat> the sky See, was fading. Yes, it's fading, guys. The sky is fading, seemingly waiting for something to happen. Sonadred knew not what or whether he wanted to. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, okay. 
The light in the sky had all but faded beyond the horizon, the long shadows disappearing into twilight darkness. Twilight darkness? (laughs) Twilight darkness, the name of my metal album. (laughs) It's also the name of my uh, of my pony from like My Little Pony, Twilight Darkness. Twilight Darkness. Yes. Oh dear, that's evil, evil Twilight Sparkle. Um, <laughs> they reached the far bank with a soft thud. 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 As as the wooden raft scraped the bottom of the shallow water. <laughs> Kithris leapt ashore and was followed shortly by Sonadrid, who was then harshly instructed to pull the raft ashore. Pull the raft ashore? How many times do we have to say this? (laughs) The raft must be kept safe. Yes, this is the most important thing in the book. Oh, man. Uh, Kithris sped along a hidden path through the woods, as Sonadrid had done so many times until they came upon a flat knoll. In the ground. The dirt had been beaten flat and held in place with stones to form a stairway and border. Etched into the ground were many large circular markings that formed a hair-raising glyph. (laughs) As they wound around each other in eerie formations. Um, I have no comment for that. Uh, <laughs> when hmm. Kithris reached the top, Sonadred beheld him throw aside his stained coat. <laughs> no, keep it on. He beheld him throw it. He beheld him throw it, and hold his left hand it. up over his head. <clears throat> My dance begins. <laughs> so we heard the strains of Prince over the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> the moon was full, and it shined down upon them with a cold, pale light. Suddenly, Kithris cried out in a harsh tongue that Sonadred did not recognize, even after years of studying such things. As the words were spoken, they seemed to echo in Sonadred's ear, but instead of fading with each repeat, they grew louder until it was too much for him to bear. He brought his hands to his ears and called for Kithris to stop, but the light from the moon suddenly engulfed both of them, flooding the world around him as a sharp, searing pain tore through his side. (laughs) With a cry, Sonadred fell upon the light-washed ground, and his eyes saw no more, yet his ears heard still a deep-throated cackling as the world around him faded. Oh, man. Such tension. <laughs> Speaking of Sonadred's mother. <laughs> yeah, we do have a female character, and this is amazing. For all of one paragraph. Sonadred's mother, Lady Rachel, as she would be called in a royal court. Not, I mean. I mean, I, I would be called uh, like Don Bosco the Twelfth <laughs> in a royal court too, but. <laughs> She, you just know I'm she not. goes. Ar- she goes around the village telling everybody it's Lady Rachel. Um, I love how. Oh man, yes. Okay, <laughs> Lady Rachel, as she would be called in a royal court, had been worried since Sonadred had left to train, 
Thus she left the house, and saw that Kithris was taking Sonator to the other side of the river, the one Swag had forbidden any to tread upon. Oh no, tread upon that river, they tread upon it. treading upon, ah, without thinking, she began to follow, when she could follow, when she found she could not follow. (laughs) Okay. She began to follow, until she found she couldn't. (laughs) Looking down to see what kept her from continuing, she saw that she was sinking. Deeply into mud. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the path was no path at all, but a long river of thick mud. Almost in a panic, she looked to see that Kithris and Sonadred were treading upon the same mud stream, as though it were the hardest stone road. (laughs) Turning back, she struggled back to the village to find swag. And that was the one female character in this entire book. Just the one, the only one. Well done, Lady Rachel. Yes. You went out, you found you could not follow because to your surprise, you were knee deep in mud. <laughs> and then you turned back. You are truly a character worthy of inclusion in the annals of... Ah, It was something... All right. I thought it was pretty hot. It was pretty hot. I actually I, was kind of disappointed that Kithris and Sonadred were not a canon couple. Like, the chemistry is there. You know, I didn't finish this. There's still time. <laughs> so maybe an ongoing project will be us finishing this, where they wind up uh, with the one they deserve. Exactly. Which is each other. And, <laughs> and he... Because he faints again. And that's another thing. Random... Let's make this a topic also of our next one is people fainting all the time in <laughs> fantasy see that is like the i i'll just say it that's the laziest form of transition i say as i did that exact same thing in my script that i'm writing but i mean sonadred passes out a lot like all the time he does have this like fainting thing and it's it's really just the narrative way of closing the curtain on a scene you know yeah of course this was before i realized you can literally just end the paragraph somewhere at a decently like conclusive point and then just in your next paragraph you're somewhere else that's fine i would also point out that um you seem to i i have trouble or i had trouble with this myself um you you feel like you have to like do a play-by-play of every single thing that people are doing like chronologically (laughs) like and then he stepped on the raft and then he pushed off on the raft and then he did this and then he walked up the hill and you know, all of that could be summarized in like, and then they went, came upon this hill in the forest and that, you know, they could have just said that or something. That would have been, yeah, no, but I felt I, I did need to explain everything. It's it's a lot like 1950s filmmakers uh, for like B-movies where they felt like if we don't see them walking from their inner office to their outer office to the lobby to the outside in real time, we're going to be confused. It's like, oh, how did they so. get there? I'm I'm just whip, whiplash from scene changes. So, um, yes, that is where we uh, shall leave off, and we shall uh, continue at another time. <laughs>